Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. In their latest book, Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay, authors Liz Fossling and Molly West write, Big feelings can knock the wind out of us. We wrote this book to prove to ourselves that difficult emotions are not abnormal and that it is possible to emerge from them with newfound wisdom. You may know Liz and Molly from their popular Instagram account featuring Liz's poignant illustrations applicable to our life and work life. I reached out to the two authors this summer to invite them to the podcast, round about the time that Roe v. Wade was overturned. It was a time when there were plenty of big feelings in the air, on top of what has felt like a past few years of a really big feelings sandwich. We decided to talk about topics that don't normally arise in conversations around their new book, regarding situations that are many big emotions all at once. Life happenings that we deal with that bring to bear uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, and regret. In this conversation, Liz opens up about what she calls her compulsion to work. Molly and I join in with our own versions of this conglomerate of big feelings, and together we tease out identity from work, productivity from creating value, what fears and dreams drive us, how to detach from work, and how to lean into joy versus feeding the stress monsters that can drive us to our inboxes when life is waiting for us. Enjoy. Reboot Your Year is our invitation to you to pause and honor the transition into this new year. This simple yet powerful five-day course will guide you through this annual transition with grace and open you to the promise and hope of the year ahead. The course unfolds through daily emails, each with a koan to consider and a guided journaling practice handcrafted by the Reboot team. Each day's practice takes less than 20 minutes to complete. We hope you'll enjoy this course so much you'll make it part of your annual practice. We've heard from many of you that you have, and you'll share it with teammates and colleagues as well. Learn how to reboot your year at reboot.io slash reboot new year. Hi, Liz. Hi, Molly. I'm so glad to have you back for another conversation about big feelings, which I know is the title of your newest book. And today we'll be talking about uh, that nagging compulsion to work. But I'm glad to have you with us and um, to be kind of fostering this conversation for us. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, happy to be here. Where shall we dive in? I can kind of kick things off with my compulsion to work. <laughs> Molly, <laughs> I can hand it off to you. Um, yeah, I think this topic we touch on a bit in the book, I think mostly under the perfectionism chapter and then somewhat in the burnout chapter. And it's, you know, I think one of the big things in the book is always it's much easier said than done. So Molly and I even flagged this that a lot of moving through compulsion to work, perfectionist thoughts, it's a recovery process. It's not like you find one thing and then you're cured for the rest of your life. And so it's very much something I'll speak for me personally that I still struggle with, which is this, you know, even in Molly and I wrote this book together and had full-time jobs. And so already it's like, we're doing a lot and it's been like, we both had to learn how to balance all that, but I still find myself on a Saturday or a Sunday when I've wrapped up all my projects on Friday. And for whatever reason, we have this magical weekend where there isn't anything book related <laughs> that we need to do. Um, I find myself sometimes feeling like I'm drifting. Like I just, I just want that dopamine hit of getting through a lot of emails and feeling really productive and feeling like I'm proving to everyone around me that I'm capable and dependable. And without these, what, what I think in our modern society truly is like minute by minute opportunities to validate yourself by getting back to someone really quickly or phrasing an email really well. Yeah, it's sometimes 
I just find myself being like, well, maybe I'll just start a new project now, as opposed to doing what I know is best for me and just staying away from the computer (laughs) and not piling more things on my plate. But, and this is the, the, my compulsion actually comes from a friend who was telling me that, you know, she's a very high achieving person. She does really well at her job. And she says that, yeah, when she has a spare afternoon, she knows that she should exercise or call a friend or do something that's more restorative. And yet she can't stop herself from like checking her work email and checking Slack and maybe again, generating more things to do. So it seems like a common thing that people experience. And again, from my perspective, one of the things I've noticed is just that it is addicting to respond to things, to have a lot going on. It's like this, you know, we live in a culture that really puts being busy on a pedestal. It makes you feel important. It makes you appear important to other people. And I always say when I have taken longer periods off, whether it's up for a vacation or a leave, the first day, I always have this day of depression, which I think is just my body getting used to not having that like frantic energy. And then two days later, I feel really good. I actually feel way better because it's kind of my brain has had a chance to settle down. I've started to detach my worth from my work. I'm rediscovering kind of my identity outside of this busy bee. But it's always that first day where I have this crash of what do I do now? Like, what what am I supposed to be doing if not responding to this endless onslaught of notifications? Yeah, I have a feeling a lot of us have our own version of that compulsion, especially like as a founder, as an owner, you know, like the work never really goes away. Like you're always thinking about the business. I know I'm always thinking about the business. Yeah, I think a lot of people now, you know, are working in more creative roles or we have an entrepreneurial element, whether you're a founder or you're doing something on the side. And there's never an end, you know, like I remember I had a friend who worked as a lawyer for the government and he could not take his computer home with him and he could not, he was not reachable outside of the office because of all the security measures and privacy measures they had. And that was so foreign to me. It was Mm -hmm. just like, you know, he would leave the office at six and that was it for him. (laughs) And for me, it's like, I I don't, there's never an end to any of it. I think it, it very much is a, a compulsion bordering on an addiction. Um, I've certainly been there. And I think, you know, we've, the word workaholics comes to mind. Um, it can feel good sometimes to get things done, to check things off of my list, to get through my email. And we get a little hit of dopamine from it. One of the things that I've been trying to do is, is come up with some replacement activities because I think it's very easy to say, I want to work less, but then what do you do with that time? And so coming up with some things that, you know, and Liz, you mentioned like, you know, call a friend, exercise. And and for me, it's, it's actually been about trying to come up with even less productive things than that. Like I recently bought a hot tub and I know that not everyone is in a position to buy a hot tub. It's an expensive purchase, but that is such a nice way to stop working. Like after I, you know, eat dinner and I might do do a little bit of work, but then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get in the hot tub. And that really like ends my night for me in a nice way. I've been getting into reading romance novels, which is like not a productive like book to be reading at all. But there's many different genres of romance novels for anyone who's interested. There's like so many different variations, but it just feels sort of indulgent. And in a way, it's it's reminding myself of some of those creature comforts and saying like, okay, you know what I'm going to do this afternoon is is one of these things that's just going to make me feel really good that that isn't productive. So having some of those like replacement activities for me has been helpful. I love that. I just wrote joy versus productivity mm. down. And that, that, that feels like that choice is it's it's that choice to invest in yourself versus invest in this thing outside of you that somehow is going to give you a reward or that you will be rewarded for in some way by some person in your, you know, work hierarchy or your working network. And it's a really lovely way 
to change that addiction uh, or that compulsion, I guess, into something that's um, nourishing versus depleting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious, Ali. What are your what are your nourishing or joyful activities? It's a really good question. Um, well, I have a very extensive and expensive horse habit. Um, and I kind of joke that as chief manure officer, I am, that's my full-time job. And then, you know, coaching just is my hobby. I do, I do have plenty of time to take care of myself amongst the three, uh, horses that I have. And that's kind of a full bore thing that really feeds me. And just bridging off our last conversation on chronic illness, it's, it's been one of those things that, um, you know, when I, when I asked myself the question, how do I want to spend my minutes and, or if I was going to die tomorrow, what would I choose to be doing? You know, I'm going to hang out in the barn with my, my four-legged friends that really just make my heart explode in a good way. And then when the weather's bad and I can't ride, I, I set up a little bit of a art studio in our laundry room. So I have, I have that creative outlet kind of on the ready, you know, all the shelves are stocked with paints and uh, canvases and whatnot. So I can work on a small piece and, and have a sense of completion and productivity. Right. But it's, but it's from a moment of just pure creative flow, just to see what's happening, you know, in an intuitive space. So really unstructured and and equally as nourishing to me Um, because the, the locus there is like what feeds me. Right. So that's, that's my metric versus what might I gain in terms of gold stars or accolades, you know, from some sort of external, external metric. I was just say that's a really nice distinction, which is what's, it's like, what, what can I do that's just for me, that feeds me, that it doesn't require any sort of external validation versus doing things that are in service of status, another person, productivity. I like that distinction. One thing that I've struggled with, and Allie, we, I think, touched on this in a call at some point, is that I, so I'm a huge homebody. And my favorite thing to do to recharge is to just have a very quiet, like, minimalist white bedroom where everything's beige. (laughs) It's just like me and I don't hear street noises and I can just kind of like cocoon away from the world. And I live in the Bay area where it is extremely expensive to buy literally a two to three bedroom house that is quiet. And so I find, I, I love living here. My friends are here and yet I think part of my compulsion comes from the scarcity mindset of, I just, I need to be advancing my career. I need to be doing more things in order to like one day be able to afford this house <laughs> that will allow me to finally rest. And that, that is, I think, yeah, just something I think about a lot is living in a place with a lot of high achievers whom I love dearly in a beautiful place that's also incredibly expensive. And so it's this balance of, I think this is where I am happiest. And yet also there are structural elements of the city in which I live that sort of contribute to my unhappiness. I don't think I would have the same compulsions if I, like I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago where you can have a four bedroom house and a basement and a huge yard. And it's not cheap, but it's, reasonable. (laughs) You know, it's like when you compare it to what houses cost here, it is absolutely affordable. And I, you know, there's many reasons I don't necessarily want to go back there, but I think it speaks to this internal struggle that I often feel, which is this sort of like ambitious achieving self that has this lives in this really, you know, go, go, go fast paced city. That's really enlivening. And yet there's like this dark underside, which is, it's really hard to step away and to feel good about it when sort of the basics of what help you recharge are actually really expensive and hard to attain. Yeah. I've, I've, I've felt that I, I sometimes still feel that. And 
it is hard. And and I'm not in the Bay Area. I'm just in Boulder, which is <laughs> it's almost like the Bay Area inland, but maybe a little a little less. But I mean, the housing market is insane here. And I remember moving here for graduate school um, almost 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, we were we were just renting at the time. And when we were lucky enough to get a home, you know, God bless my ex-architect who was really driven in that way. You know, like, we, you know, we have to get a home. We have to build equity and all of that. It was still a squish just to be house poor. Mm-hmm. And, and to have that be driving my own sense of, I need to be working harder. I need a career. I need to have all these things in place. That was like one stressor. And I think there was another parallel lane that was an equal stressor for me at least, which was, I know what kind of space makes me really happy and what things Mm -hmm. I need in my life. And I'm a like a far cry from being anywhere near being able to buy that for myself or have that for myself in this location that I'm choosing to be a part of. And it's such a mixed bag because this location, like you experience in the Bay area, right? Like it's got all these other opportunities for me. It was the mountains and, and the outdoor stuff right outside that, you know, my hometown in the Midwest does not have. Um, we had a nice river running through it, but we also had insane humidity and bugs and all kinds of unpleasant things. And, you know, the, the cultural stuff, you know, that you thrive off of in the Bay area and even in LA, Molly, you know, it's, it's those areas and those things that are so close and so handy that even if you don't do them every day, you, you know, it's just, uh, you know, a short drive for entertainment or super nice restaurants or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a real inner battle sometimes when you, you're living with those choices and almost weighing the pros and cons. And the stressors, I think, are real because sometimes those needs, like especially the need for rest or space or like the kind of space that doesn't make you feel like you have that compulsion or you need to keep up or if you don't keep up, you're going to be irrelevant it's a, I don't know, it's a real thing. But I know when I go back home or think about having the life I have now, you know, in the upper Midwest, something just feels really muted, but in a good way, right? Like it would be so quiet, a little disconnected. And how welcome might that be? You know, I don't know that I would be working as much or I I don't know, but I know my life up until my prime working years, like, Um, it was different. The feeling was different. It was driven by different things. And it just felt like there was space or a whole different relationship to work even. I I think our environments affect us so much in relation to that. And I think finding that right balance, I mean, I lived in New York City for six years. And to me, I grew up in Seattle. And so the pace of that city was always a little bit faster than I think i naturally exist at. And many good things come out of that. I mean, I think the publishing industry is there. I worked for a fantastic job. Like there's so much that I think I was pushed to do. And yet ultimately, I think really like burned out hard of that city. And my nervous system was really not doing well at the end of living there. Not that LA is that much, you know, different, but it's enough different that I can inhabit my more natural speed of living. And when I go home to Seattle, it feels even different. And Seattle's changed so much, but it it feels a little bit more like um, people are doing their jobs, but also doing a lot of other things outside of their work and their identity is, is not as much tied up into their their work. And it's sometimes I feel even a sense of like blame of like, how come I can't be, you know, that person who just works a nine to five job and, you know, is happy with that and lives in a suburb or lives in a small city. And like, that's enough. And I think that's what many people who are creative or entrepreneurial grapple with is like, on the one hand, you want this simple life. And on the other hand, 
there's a reason that you left that. And there's a reason that, you know, you're, you're dabbling in whatever it is that you're dabbling in because that keeps the creative flame alive and, you know, you want that. And, but, but I think it's very easy to get out of whack a little bit. And, and especially in an environment where being like the Bay area or other, you know, New York, where we're being pushed to do that even more so than just our natural interest level, because everyone in the city is doing that makes it really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I often think about my friend group in the Bay area. Everyone is so impressive and so inspiring and utterly exhausting. <laughs> you know, it's like you have a dinner party and everyone's doing these amazing things. And then, and, and again, like I am the same, so I love it. But also, you know, you'll ask, we were looking for a new air purifier and three people at the table have created a spreadsheet where they like <laughs> found all the air purifiers and compared them. They have the wire cutter rating and the New York times rating. And it's just like, we are too much, <laughs> too much. Um, but then, yeah, it's also like kind of delightful and enjoyable. So it's this internal panel. One of the things that Molly and I talk about in our book, this is actually from the comparison chapter that I really try to remind myself of is we have a tendency to compare ourselves to this mishmash of everyone we know. And so we create this mythical human being in our head who's doing it all, all the time. So for example, I'll go to lunch with a friend who founded a company and then I'll have dinner with a friend who you know, recently read a book and then just like these people who are very impressive. And in my head, it turns into this person who like just wrote a book, founded a company, works at a company that just IPO'd, has the best clothes, is currently in Italy, has three kids, has the best relationship ever and owns a beautiful house. And those are actually 20 different people that have parts of that. But in my head, I'm comparing me to this mythical creature that does all of that at the same time, because that's kind of how our minds operate it. Like we tend to compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths and then only look at everyone's accomplishments as opposed to the full picture of their lives. So I also try to remind myself of, yes, I have a friend who worked at a company that IPO'd. I would never want the job that they worked for six years I don't want the job they have now. There's a lot that they had to sacrifice because they worked long hours. They do have a beautiful house, but I'm actually comfortable with the fact that I made a different choice at one point. Um, But it takes a lot of work to remind yourself of that and not to just slip into this. Why don't I have that? And then that, you know, spirals into, I need to be doing more and more and more and more and more to keep up. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's exhausting as well. That spiral, the downward spiral, emotionally exhausting. It's, I think it's in these fast paced places. It's, we really don't have role models of people who are living very different lives, you know, like across some metrics of diversity, I would say I have a diverse friend group in the Bay, but across many others, I don't like everyone's around the same age everyone's made similar career choices is going after similar goals. There's a, you know, there's a lot of homogeneity among this group versus like when I go back to the Midwest, it is kind of nice sometimes to see people who had families younger and are very, it just, there's a lot of different lives that you can compare yourself to and sort of think through. And I think it expands my mind of like, Oh, there's different ways to live. I don't have to be on this like constantly going, going, going track. Um, So that's another, I think just speaks to kind of getting out of your environment sometimes as well. And those spaces where you you can do that, I mean, even without leaving your city, I I write about this in the book, but um, I, in recovering from some injuries, I've been going to a local public pool and during the pandemic, everyone comes roughly at the same time. And so you sort of get to know people and just a really nice stepping outside of my normal workday reality to people who are retired, to young kids, to teens, to people who work odd jobs. There's a caterer who I swim next to sometimes. And 
we just forget our, our lives are so siloed that we forget that like all that exists in the same cities where, where all of us live. I think also of, of places of worship is another way of, of getting across that. I, I'm a member of a temple and I think that's another reminder of like, there's many different <laughs> generations and, and ways of living and, and all of that. And I think there's a, a couple of, of founders who I know who, make sure that they have something like that in their life, whether it's a religious group that they're a part of or some sort of non-competitive activity group. Um, You know, if it's a competitive group, it's probably not going to help you get off of that. Um, But, you know, non-competitive way. And, And those, I think, are really helpful for for staying grounded and for reminding yourself of that identity outside of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm kind of looping back to, to the joy thing too. Um, you know, it's what are those things that you know about yourself and what are the things that you know bring you joy? What are the things that you know bring you alive? Uh, you know, where time just kind of disappears and, and you, you leave nourished you leave feeling so much more like yourself than, you know, spitting out 10 emails or having a really good PowerPoint presentation. Some of the best advice I received from a friend was actually when my father-in-law died. So he was, my husband and his dad were extremely close. Like this, his dad was also just the life of every party he was a folk singer. He would show up to every event with a accordion and like a bottle of something and would just like, when he had cancer, he would go to the hospital in the waiting rooms and start playing accordion and get everyone to do a sing along. Like he was just like, he just brought so much joy into every single event. It's like memorable because he was there. Um, and I've run into people who I didn't even know knew him and they'd be like, Oh, that guy (laughs) who would like show up to the party. I remember that guy. Um, and so it was just this like huge personality. So we also felt like he left this enormous void when he died. Um, or especially like when he was declining at the end. And I remember I took a week off for bereavement leave and it was just like, I had zero compulsion to work that week. Like it just felt so crystal clear what mattered in life. And it was not the email. It was not the PowerPoint. It was like your family, the people you love showing up for them, community, making moments feel magical and special. And so you have something to look back on and remember forever. And my friend was just like, you need to write this all down because in a month you will have gone back to work and you'll be back in this Slack messages are everything. Like you just forget so quickly. And so I think I try to remember that now when there's sort of like a big thing happening in life, whether it's good or bad, it's just so easy to forget that. And yeah, so back to our conversation on chronic pain too, when I had migraines, I remember really vividly thinking any day that I don't have a migraine, how could I not be radiantly happy that day? Like I would give anything not to feel this. And then six months after the acupuncture started working and it was sort of under control, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm not satisfied in my career. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> I had all these other things going on. And so I think it's useful to just keep a record of honestly, some of your harder times and what you would be so grateful to have. And then later on, it's useful to look back at that and say, okay, here's what is really going to be a meaningful life for me. And here's what I have now that I would have given so, so much to have five years ago, two weeks ago, that kind of thing. Yeah. To me, that sounds like um, moving towards what you love versus, um, you know, kind of living life from that place of fear of what you might be missing or what you Mm -hmm. are missing or, yeah, it's a different kind of rubric and way of, way of doing life. Yeah. And it's so cliche, but I always think cliches exist for a very good reason, which is also just gratitude. Like one question that we write about in the book is when you feel that you're not enough, asking yourself, like, do I actually have enough? And usually the answer is yes. So when I say like, oh, I wish I had the 
house in the bay on the hill that's quiet. Yeah, that would be amazing. I would have maybe like nicer, peaceful weekends, but fundamentally I have an extremely good life and it's just easy to forget that too. I wonder, Liz, too, I, I know um, you're about to go out on um, leave uh, having a child. And I, and I wonder what's coming up for you around that in terms of identity and identity shift. And I think for context, my dad loves me very much, has always supported me, but has very traditional views of like what a woman's role is. And so I've always tried really hard not to make getting married or having a kid be goals for myself. If they happened, great, but it was never, I was never going to make decisions based on that. And that I think looking back was like a very extreme reaction that I think actually caused me to be less happy at some points because I love my husband. Like I, it's one of the best parts of my life now is my relationship with him. But I very much felt this strong, like, I don't care about this. It's my career. I'm going to be Liz, not a woman and a wife and a mom. So I think that definitely factors into going out on maternity leave and feeling very much like, especially at the outset, like, I just want to be me. I'll be me, but pregnant. Nothing will change, you know, and it'll be fine. It's not going to be a big deal. And that's like what I've learned is extremely unrealistic. <laughs> like I'm tired. Things have changed. I have like new physical limitations. And I think it's been... Yeah. And it also, it feels again, the scarcity mindset, it feels scary to leave. I'm lucky enough to have very good maternity leave, but it also feels scary to leave a startup for five months. I have no idea what company I'll be coming back to. I have no idea what the role will look like. You know, it's just a very long time in startup world. Uh, and so it's this feeling of like, will I be obsolete? Who will I be? And yeah, it's, it's really being forced to get off of email and get off of all these yeah, pieces that like I have a twisted relationship with, but fundamentally like make me feel good and make me feel capable and make me feel like a productive human being. So what's been most helpful to me is actually going back to this list of like when my father-in-law died and reminding myself like, no, this you made, this was like a very clear choice. And it came out of this experience where it was like in 30 years what am I going to look back on? Is it going to be that I was able to lead this project or is it that fingers crossed, I have this person that loves me and is a good human being in the world. So yeah, it's definitely mixed up a lot with like identity and being a woman and what does that mean? And what does it mean that I'm sort of putting my career on hold for a little bit so yeah, it's, that's been, I think I sort of have, I, I don't want to say unique, but sp especially strong reactions to something. Like when I married my husband, I didn't want to take his last name. It really infuriated me when people would be like, oh, you're so lucky. You locked him down. I was like, he's lucky. He locked me down. <laughs> Stop talking like that. Um, so yeah, it's, I feel... I feel really scared of just having this massive life and identity shift and excited, but also it feels very scary to just kind of be, be like forced out of the work world basically for a little while in which I feel very comfortable and confident and that I've invested a lot in. Um, I don't have kids and I know that my friends that do have such full lives and in the process become these kind of like ever unfolding much fuller expansive versions of themselves in the process but I mean it's like a much more full and intense life and and I think in the process you find so many other facets of yourself and resources maybe that you didn't even know you had I just had this vision of you like re-emerging um, or re-entering work, like different, but, but in like the most like radiantly full way possible. 
um, in a way that might not even be palpable, like from this point, you know, but I hope that sounds great. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I think one thing, which is less like it sort of hasn't sunk in that there's going to be a human in my life, but it's more mm-hmm. on the, on the exhaustion and physical element of it is being so tired that you no longer care about drawing your boundaries. Um, one thing that's been really nice, especially over the past couple of months is I'll get requests or built something will come in. And before I would just be like, Oh, I should do this. I shouldn't say no to this. And I've become much better. I've been forced to essentially be like, I am tired. This I'm, I can't take this on. And that's also, I think been a useful muscle to build. Mm-hmm. Is there on the sort of compulsion or feeling like it's hard to step away from work? Is there anything that you hear a lot from people or at Reboot that you think would be useful for us to chat through? Yeah. Well, the one thing that's, that's really been on my mind is um, one of the thing that I've, things that I've, I've heard from as coming kind of an undercurrent with a few clients and is, you know, that shame drives their workaholism, right? Mm-hmm. So if they stop working, it's not just the lack of the dopamine hit of the getting the things done and crossing things off the list and feeling productive, but it's the moment I stop working, I then have to feel this awful feeling mm-hmm. of, you know, I'm not enough. Who do I think I am? I mean, it kind of like, it's this downward spiral of self-worth and imposter syndrome. And it's, it ends up in a steaming pile of shame and Mm. shame when it drives, you know, behaviors, especially behaviors towards work, you eventually, you know, exhaust yourself on some level because you're operating out of that place where it's out of fear ultimately, right? It's this fear that, Oh, someone's going to find out that I am like, really awful or as awful as I feel like I am on the inside. And when that's operating, it easily runs coping mechanisms and other behaviors, which are exhausting on many levels until your body tells you this isn't working anymore. Wake up, you know, deal with whatever trauma or, you know, big T trauma, little T trauma is, is, is fueling this and find yourself again, find your ground, find that foundation so that you can choose to move forward in life from a different place. I would say that's, that's kind of one really interesting theme around workaholism Mm. and the compulsion to not let go. Sometimes it's a control issue and sometimes they're all related, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm not doing this thing, who's going to do this thing? Mm -hmm if I stop working, it's all going to fall apart. Some of that is, um, you know, the false beliefs that we can hold as leaders, um, no matter what leadership, you know, chair we're in, in the hierarchy of, of roles and organizations these days. That makes me think there's both the external pressure. So fear around, as you said, people are not going to think that I'm doing well, or this perception of myself is, or the external perception of myself is going to change um, if I don't work seven days a week and get everything done on time and all of that. I think for me, and I'm guessing for a lot of founders too, there's also an internal thing. And I, I know that, you know, the, the pressure that I put on myself is much higher than the pressure that anyone else puts on me. And what I expect myself to be able to get done in a week is way higher than what anyone else expects me to get done in a week. And so it's just interesting to think about that from the perspective of like where this identity comes from, because it's, it's somewhat self-imposed and, but then once it's self-imposed, then you still feel like you have to live up to it. So, So, you know, in past jobs, I've, I've often felt like, okay, I know what good looks like for my role. Like, and I'm going to make sure that I'm proud of myself, which means pushing myself really hard to get things done and do things to the level 
that I want them to be at. And it's really not anyone else saying, oh, Molly, you have to get this done faster or better. It's myself saying this. But then once I have set that expectation for for myself and others, it's hard for me to let go of that because I'm like, well, I'm the person, you know, if no one else in the organization is doing this, it's not going to get done. So I have to do it, Um, you know, or like, well, no one else is stepping up, so I have to do it. And that is where I really get caught is in those moments where Honestly, my colleagues would probably be fine if I did 80% of what I normally do, but my own identity is so wrapped up in this pace that I have set for myself that it's very hard for me to disentangle myself from it. I don't know if either of you, that if that resonates, but that's one of that the That resonates a lot. Me. I'm curious where you think that comes from. Um, well... Some of it, I think it goes deep. My parents are divorced and there was a lot of that I had to take on. I was the oldest child. And so like I did all of the like packing for myself and sometimes for my sibling and shuttling us back and forth. And so at a very early age, I had to take on a lot more adult responsibilities than most nine-year-olds do. Well, I wasn't driving then, but um, <laughs> still I was doing like a lot of other things. And and the consequences were very real, right? Like if I didn't do a good job of managing my time or packing, then I would not have what I needed on a weekend or I would not, you know, um, be able to do certain activities that I was planning to do. And so the consequences were heavy and real. And I think that just instilled in me a sort of like, okay, I have to be hypervigilant around taking care of myself and getting things done because the stakes are pretty high. And in my, you know, day-to-day job life, the stakes are usually not that high, thankfully. Um, but I still operate from that perspective of like, well, no one else is going to do this. I have to step up and be the parent. That's for me, but. Mm-hmm. I'm sure others have other stories. Yeah. Well, those, it's those, those early parentification stories, uh, that, that totally drive us. They drive us into our careers. And then we arrive and we're, if we're aware enough to pause and question, why am I moving so fast and where am I really going and what am I running from or towards and where am I right now? Right. And we start to like question where we are in space and try to find a a different, um, uh, something to drive us. I mean, it's only then once we inquire about it, that we're like, well, shit, this was, this was me trying to survive and I'm still trying to survive, but I don't need to like, I don't need to do that anymore. So what now? Right. So how, what do I do now? Right. It's, um, it's kind of like learning a whole new way of, of moving forward, which can be just, um, kind of mind boggling to our systems when Mm -hmm. it's those impulses and those coping mechanisms that have gotten us here. And for good reason, I mean, they got you here, right. Helped you survive. It was, they were doing their job. And now the choice is, what do I want to do now? Yeah, on that, the what do I want to do now? Yeah, this is, so it's tangentially related, but it's just coming up for me a lot, which is, um, Molly, what you were saying about the self-imposed pressure resonates a lot. And I think for me, it comes from a slightly different place where my parents are immigrants and growing up, I just heard so much about my dad grew up extremely poor, like had to work his way through school. So just a lot of stories about like everything they gave up. And then I'm an only child. They had me when they were both significantly older. I'm almost 44. So I think there was just a lot of like, oh my gosh, we finally have a child. And there was always a lot of expectation placed on me of I'm the reason that they came to America to like have the next generation have more opportunity. So that felt... I feel extremely grateful to them and also indebted to them of like, I need to really shine because it needs to be better than my parents and my parents, you know, they, I didn't grow up poor. 
they both um, have PhDs and my dad's a doctor. So like they were fine. (laughs) So it was also like, which was great for me, but then it was the bar for the next generation was actually pretty high. And so I went to school, studied math and economics because it was like, you could be lawyer, doctor, banker. I hate blood. So doctor wasn't an option. Lawyer was too much writing. So it was like, I guess I'm a banker and hated, hated, hated that job. And so what actually has really helped me move out of those expectations and like craft a life that is more meaningful to myself is someone once said to me, your parents want what is good for you because they're your parents, but that might not be what's best for you. And so it's really wonderful, like to understand that they just really want you to thrive and be happy. And they have like this very fixed idea of what that looks like, but you can thrive and be happy and still sort of fulfill their dreams in a different way by finding what you want to do and what really brings you lightness and brings you to life. And it's been really cool to see, you know, my dad is the doctor. He's very quantitative. Molly and I, our books are no hard feelings and big feelings. I draw. (laughs) He's just like, what is going on in your life? (laughs) Um, but he's also just like in the past couple of years, especially just been like, I'm really proud of you. Like you created Mm. this whole new career for yourself. You're doing something that I don't know anything about. He's like, I truly don't understand what it is you do, but people seem to want to listen to you. Um, and so it's been a nice affirmation of, it was only once I could step out of those expectations that I actually Mm. think I fulfilled what they wanted for me, which was a meaningful, successful career. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's that like inner locus, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's deciding what is, what is for me right now in this life and in my career and, and how do I want to design this? What's my map? Um, and, and part of the work, which, which I hear, that you were doing was really sussing out that map and being like, almost like picking up every little piece and being like, is this mine? Wait, no, no, no. This is from dad. Okay. I'm going to put this Mm. on the shelf. Right. Mm. And then, and then sorting things out, you know, that way. And that, that's a process that I think we all have to do at some point in our life. If we're Mm -hmm. really going to true up to, you know, who we really are and, and, um, really living in integrity with, with that. And that takes slowing down, like slowing down that kind of frantic, maybe coping mechanism driven pace and starting to ask the questions like, wait a second, like who's got the instructions for this game and what game am I playing? And like, wait a second, when was the last time I had lunch? So, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's what I think is so wonderful about Reboot and the work that you all do and the podcast, which is, I think, helping people connect these behaviors that show up in our work lives, overworking compulsions, as we've talked about, with stories of family of origin and all of that and and, and doing it in a way that feels comfortable and accessible to people using, you know, plain language that's not therapized language. Because I think that's so important. And I I think it took me a long time into my adult life to do that, to make some of those connections. And it, you know, for me, it took a lot of therapy and coaching, but to say, okay, these behaviors that are showing up in me working on a Saturday afternoon when there's really no reason for me to do that with my parents divorcing when I was nine, like that takes, that's a journey to, to make that connection. It takes courage to make that connection. And I just really appreciate that you all share so many stories of people making those connections between um, their work selves and their broader human selves. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the broader human self, I think is so often overlooked because 
like Liz, I think I heard you say at some point, even in this past hour, like, I just, I just want to be me. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to be me. Is that okay? Is that enough? I mean, that's almost like a fundamental question from a human point of view that so many of us hold, 99.99% of us, I would argue. Um, and with that, you know, and it follows us into work. It doesn't, doesn't stay at the door. It doesn't stay in a crate in the house when we leave to go to the office. Yeah. And I also think the beauty of what you guys have written in both of your books is a very accessible roadmap to uh, self-awareness around feelings, because I think that language is inherently important to starting to even understand, wait, how am I right now? (laughs) Oh, this is anger. Oh, how do I then navigate this? It's like, um, it's like a gateway drug to a lot of these deeper questions in Italy. I mean, your books alone offer some fabulous frameworks and drawings. They're fantastic. (laughs) So. Well, thank you. I'll just say, um, thank you both for joining me again. Um, I love how we've kind of, like corralled a few big feelings just around like this much larger topic of work and what compels us to check emails on a Saturday afternoon. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo. Are you interested in coaching, but unsure where to start? At Reboot, we know finding the right coach can feel daunting. If you'd like to explore coaching with Reboot, our engagement team will work closely with you to find the coach to best match your goals so that you can learn to unlock what's in your way, leverage your talents as a leader, and live and lead a more aligned life. To learn more about Reboot's approach to coaching or to connect with our engagement team, head to reboot.io slash coaching.